We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. If you're asking questions about God, your faith, or the meaning and purpose of life, we would love to connect with you. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. We hope this sermon encourages you today. That was it. Um, The season of Advent is upon us, and it's a season that we are renewed in our hope, uh, that the church throughout history has emphasized our longing and yearning for Jesus' return to make all things new and to make all things right that are wrong with the world. We say in the Nicene Creed with the church throughout history that Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And this is what we're waiting for. And it's good news that we're waiting for this because it means that the world is not what it should yet. It's not what it will be. And that's great news because we're living in a world of pain and brokenness. We're reminded of that with the the war that's droning on in Ukraine. And we're reminded of that with the senseless acts of violence that we've experienced in our own nation. I mean, it just seems like too many to count over the last few weeks, most recently at the Walmart in Chesapeake, Virginia. The church, from its beginning, the people of God have cried out, Come, Lord Jesus. And those are the words, actually, that close the biblical witness in Revelation 22. This cry, Come, Lord Jesus. It's kind of like we've we've tasted and seen your goodness. You've been among us. You've healed. You've done work. You've you've changed so much. And then you ascended to heaven. Now, please come back. Come back and fix everything that's broken and rescue this world. And that, actually, that cry of the early church gets codified in their original language of Aramaic in 1 Corinthians 16 with the word Maranatha, just means Lord, come. And when something's preserved in that original language of the the, the language most likely that the earliest Christians spoke, it it says something significant about its place within the earliest group of Christians. This was part of their their cry, the cry of their heart. So here's my question. So that's the, the framing of Advent is Jesus is coming back. My question is, will we be ready? Are you ready? Am I ready? Are we ready to meet him? Many of you are watching the World Cup right now in Qatar, enjoying those matches, or at least the five-minute highlight version, for which I'm very grateful. Um, Do you know that they picked Qatar 12 years ago to host the World Cup? Not without great controversy. They built eight stadiums in the last 12 years, also not without significant and justified controversy, I would say. But they had 12 years to get ready. This has been on our calendar for a long time. The England-USA match of Friday was on the calendar since April 1st when they did the drawings for the groups. There's been a lot of time to prepare. Well, the return of Jesus is a world-encompassing event, much like the World Cup, only greater. Everybody will be involved. And yet it's an event for which we will have no time to prepare. Jesus actually says it's coming at a time that you do not expect. And so his exhortation in Matthew 24 to his disciples is two things. Number one, stay awake. Are you awake? And then second, be ready. Stay awake and be ready. Because this is going to happen when you don't expect it. So when, you, when he comes back, will you be ready to meet him, to engage him, to encounter him face-to-face? Think about it for a moment. If Jesus were to intercept you on your way home from church tonight, and you had to give an account for your life, for what you spend your money on, for how you spend your time, for how you treat those who are poor or the unreached, for how you treat your neighbors, for what you're aiming for, your ambitions, your desires, would you be ready to see Jesus and give an account of those things? Are we ready? That's the question that I want to have reverberating 
in our minds over the course of the next four weeks as we begin a new mini-series, a series within a series on the book of Leviticus. Um, This is a, a series of four sermons on Leviticus 18, 19, and 20 that I'm calling Be Holy. Be holy. Because we've had, up to this point in Leviticus, we've had so much that's gone on, mostly around sacrifices and priesthood and atonement, the day of atonement we looked at last week. And all of this is about God's gracious revelation of the way that his people can enter into his presence and the way that God's holy presence can dwell safely with his sinful people. God has provided a way to deal with sin and uncleanness such that his people can actually remain in his presence. But now the book begins to shift, and chapter 17 through 27 are referred to as often as the holiness code, because their overwhelming concern is about the topic of holiness. And so the book shifts, and it's as if to say, look, you have access to the Holy Lord of glory, but the the sacrificial access through the the apparatus of the the, the religious system is only one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that this is all pointing to a means of dealing with sin, that you could grow in degrees and degrees of holiness to actually be in God's presence. Because God remember his holy and he can't mix with sin and impurity. And so there's, uh, there's also this calling on the people of God to grow in holiness. And that's what we're going to look at over the next few weeks together. We'll start tonight by looking at chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, and doing a bit of an introduction And then in the remaining three weeks, we're going to look in the next two weeks at two prohibitions in significant areas. One is a prohibition around worship, and the other is prohibitions around sex. And then in the third and final week, we're going to come back and look at God's, what we call the Sermon on the Mount of the book of Leviticus, which is Leviticus 19, which contains the verse that everybody knows from Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. And we're going to come back and look at that and see the call to holiness and how it permeates every nook and cranny of our lives and our social life in particular together. So if you will, the next few weeks are going to be idolatry, sexuality, and justice, kind of the plan as we go forward. But tonight, we're going to do an introduction to uh, this topic of holiness from the first five verses of Leviticus 18. And let me say, as we begin, this is an area where there's substantial opposition. When the church talks about holiness or gets serious about holiness, it's an area where the enemy wants to get active and block and confuse and keep us away from this. J.C. Ryle in the 19th century said this. He said, Satan knows well the power of true holiness and the immense injury which increased attention to it will do to his kingdom. So there's opposition when we talk about wanting to grow in holiness. So let's keep that in mind as we step into tonight as well as the next few weeks during Advent together. So today, we'll consider the shape of holiness, the ground of holiness, and the motivations for holiness. That's our three, threefold structure. And these remain actually the, sh- the same. The shape, the ground, and the motivations remain the same even for, for new covenant Christians like you and me who have come to know God through Jesus and have been washed and purified by the blood of Jesus and been brought in and now have a high priest interceding for us at the throne of the Father. We too share in these same, the same shape of holiness, the same ground of holiness, and the same motivations for holiness. So I hope you'll see yourself in these things as we look at them through the lens of Leviticus. So let's start with the shape of holiness. There's two parts to this. There's a negative and a positive. And the negative is nonconformity to the cultures of this world. Nonconformity. So look with me in Leviticus 18, starting in verse 3 for this point. 
You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. So let's think about this. They were in Egypt as slaves. That was the the water that they were swimming in, likely it had given them all kinds of patterns of behavior and thinking. And here they're told, you shall not do what they do, the place from which you've been rescued. And furthermore, I'm taking you to this place called Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, and you shall not do what they do in Canaan. It's interesting right now at Sinai, which is where we are still in their journey, it's as if God has taken them out of any culture that, is, um, that has elements of rebellion against him, placed them in a kind of cultureless place, the, the, the barren wilderness, and it's in that barren place that he's giving them his law, his purposes, his way, so that they can begin to be formed as a new kind of people in his image. A holy people. So you shall not do what the Canaanites do, what the Egyptians do. So it's non-conformity. When we have occasionally some spirited conversations in our Booker home about statutes that we have in our house, uh, we often say to our kids, you know, kids, we're not like other families. And when we say that, we don't mean in a haughty way, like we're so much better than every other family at all. We have so much room to grow and to work on, and God is having mercy on our family every day. But what we mean is that we have different aims and objectives and desires because we serve a different king. And so that means that sometimes the things that we do in our family aren't going to be like what all of your other friends might do in their families. It's going to be a little different. And that same kind of approach is what's going on here is God is reminding his people in this call to holiness that you're not going to be like the peoples around you. Not going to be like those other cultures. In his 1965 book, The Tribes of Yahweh, Norman Gottwald, who's an American scholar, wrote this. To worship Yahweh, to be an Israelite, meant above all else to practice a specific way of life in separation from and in overt opposition to time-honored established ways of life regarded throughout the ancient Near East as inevitable, if not totally desirable. You see what he's saying? That they're to establish a different kind of way of life that is in opposition to other ways of life that seem both inevitable and perhaps even desirable in the world around them. That's what it meant to be this set-apart, holy people. And that's the first point here about the shape of holiness. It's nonconformity. John Stott's last published book, this great leader of the, mostly of the 20th century, he died, I think, in 2011. This book was published in 2010. He has a chapter where he talks about nonconformity as a dimension of holiness. And he says, you know, what this means specifically in our culture and in the Western secular world is a rejection of pluralism, materialism, moral relativism, and narcissism. And we could tease all of those out, and we will tease out some of them in the weeks to come. But there are these dimensions of the culture around us that we need to resist. I do want to say, be careful when I say this, that we are not anti the culture. We actually love the world that God loves. We love the people around us, and we're called to be servants of them, even to pour our lives out for them. And there are dimensions of the cultures of this world that will be will make it through. They'll be redeemed. They're expressions of common grace and of God's work, even in those that don't know him. And we want to affirm those things. At the same time, we will likely bring about reformation or some kind of reimagination of those dimensions of culture as, as we embrace them within our own context. Ancient Israel actually embraced many different elements of ancient Near Eastern culture, um, but they were to live different, in, 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 a, in a sense, over and against that culture. So it's not just a kind of black and white, you know, we're against and for. There, there is nuance here that requires wisdom and discernment as we say yes and no at the same time to our culture. 
But the point here is we are to be a distinct people who don't look like the culture around us but, and don't follow their statutes. That's the key here in verse 3. So that, that's the negative side. Then let's do the positive side really quick. Um, this takes place in verse 4. Instead, this is a contrast, and the contrast is intended here. You shall follow my rules or my just decrees or my laws and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. The positive dimension here is non-conformity to the world, but conformity to God, to the Holy Lord of glory. And this is summed up in what Gordon Wenham, the great Old Testament scholar, calls the motto of Leviticus, Leviticus 19.2, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You are to become like the God who called you and made you and and redeemed you and rescued you. You're to become like him in a life of holiness. You're to imitate him. And that's the general principle of of becoming like him or, or at least learning from his examples and his redemptive actions and then putting God's values and character into practice. The specific edge of this, and we get this in in verses 4 and 5, is actually to obey his rules and to keep his statutes. And this, I know, to some of us sounds really unexciting. Like, I thought this is what Christianity is not about. It's not about a list of rules and then, like, check, 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 check. And, of course, it's not. But it's more nuanced than that because the rules and the laws that God decrees for his people reflect his nature and his character. And to obey those rules is to reflect his character. This is the way that Christopher Wright, an Old Testament scholar, writes about this. He says, the commands of God are not autonomous or arbitrary rules. They are frequently related to the character or values or desires of God. Think about it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that that says something deep about the heart and character of God. So to obey, he right continues, to obey God's commands is to reflect God in human life. Obedience to the law and the imitation of God are not mutually exclusive categories. Rather, the one is an expression of the other. To keep his statutes and to follow his rules is to, to embody his presence in the world in which we live. They're, they're connected to one another. Holiness is not, though, just about keeping a list of statutes and rules. And and God's law is always given in the context of narrative, in the context of a covenantal relationship. And so it's a much more whole life-encompassing reality that we're to grow into. Again, Christopher Wright says this, Holiness is rather a way of being, a way of being with God in covenant relationship, a way of being like God in clean and wholesome living, a way of being God's people in the midst of an unholy and unclean world. The life of holiness is a life of complete consecration, of full yielding and surrender over to the King of glory, giving our lives to him and our loves to him and our decisions to him and our money to him and our desires to him. And it's a way of being like him. And I should say at this point, with that positive dimension, the conformity to God, that most of us probably are sitting here and going, okay, that must be for other people (laughs) because that's not really what my life looks like. And I realize it's it's a tall order. I mean, think about it. We've been studying this book for a while, and we've come to see just how amazing the holiness of God is. God is holy, and now all of a sudden we're realizing that God intends for us to be holy, to be like him. That is overwhelming. And so from this side of the cross, we have the great joy of knowing that there is a never-ending deep reservoir of mercy and tender care and forgiveness for the people of God who are wayward and stumble. 
that even as we continue to walk, we will fall again and again and again. And there is in the heart of God a, a slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love nature of, of his character that is our great hope. Even as we think about this, we, and we want to we embrace and live into and rest in that great hope without diminishing the clear call to grow in holiness as his people. So if you're here and you're thinking, this just, I, I don't match this, then I want you to know there, there is nonetheless real hope for you in the forgiveness of God and the ongoing, as, as long as we come to him with a repentant heart, as long as we, we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to give us, to wipe that slate clean, to make us white as snow, that we might continue to grow down this path of holiness. Okay. So that's the shape of holiness, point one. Point two, the ground of holiness, the ground of holiness. Uh, We see this actually in verse two. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Verse four, at the end, I am the Lord your God. Verse five, at the end, the shorter version, I am the Lord. Verse 30, at the end, I am the Lord your God. Now keep going with me in chapter nine. Starting in verse 9, the, the, those paragraphs end. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. We're, this, this phrase occurs 25 times in chapters 18, 19, and 20. These chapters that are addressed specifically to the people of Israel about holiness. And God repeatedly says, I am the Lord. Well, what's going on? This is the ground of holiness. It is the Lord himself. It is by belonging to him that we are made holy and that we can become holy as we marinate and bask in his presence, as we dwell in the presence of the holy Lord of glory. I want you to think of three things when you see that phrase, I am the Lord. This is how we'll unpack it. The first is simply that the Lord is holy, holy, holy. Every time you read that sentence in these three chapters, just think that this is the Lord that we're talking about. This is Israel's covenant God, and he is holy. That is his defining feature. It is the godness of God, his purity and moral clarity and goodness. It is his holiness that defines the uniqueness of God and his power. And every time you get, it's as if God is giving his people instructions, and then he's, he's backing up those instructions, those statutes, those rules by saying, I am the Lord. This is coming from me, the holy God, to you, the people of God. I am holy, he says. So this evokes that sense of his holiness. And this is who he is, and therefore his people are to be like him. They are to be his, belong to him, and not to be like those nations learning from his example. So that's the first thing. I am the Lord means that God is holy. But the second thing, perhaps more clearly here, is the Lord, it's translated in small caps in most of our English translations. This is the tetragrammaton. This is the divine name that's revealed to Moses in Exodus 3. This is the covenantal name of God. And so the use of this name repeatedly is saying, I'm in covenant with you. It's a reminder of their covenant relationship with him. Well, how did they get into relationship with this holy Lord of glory? It wasn't through their own doing. It wasn't through their own good behavior or following a list of rules. Rather, it was through his, surely through his mercy and his grace that God plucked them out of Egypt. 
He heard their cry in Exodus 3. He, provided, he brought the plagues on Pharaoh so that they could be released from Egypt and from slavery. He provided for them in the wilderness on their way to Sinai with water from the rock and manna from heaven. He spoke to them at the mountain in, uh, to Moses and gave them his covenant charter document, what we call the Ten Commandments. He then gave Moses instructions for how to build a dwelling place for him right in the midst of their camp, what we call the tabernacle. Then in Exodus 40, he fills the tabernacle with his glory. Then in Leviticus, he shows them the way to dwell in his presence through the sacrifices and the priesthood and the day of atonement. He did all of these things for them, not because they were worthy, not because they had some kind of merit in them that deserved this kind of, be, this kind of treatment. But when he says, I am the Lord, it's a reminder that they're in a covenant relationship with him as their divine sovereign king, all because of his mercy and grace. It's the only reason we have anything to do with God. It's because of his mercy and grace and his love. And this expression, I am the Lord your God, or I am the Lord, is just a reminder over and over and over again that they belong to him in covenant with him because of his redemptive action. I mentioned the covenant charter. How is that introduced in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments? Do you remember? In Exodus 20, God says, I am the Lord your God. There's that same phrase. And then he expands on it about and, and, and reveals his redemptive acts. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Every time you read in Leviticus 18, 19, and 20, I am the Lord, or I am the Lord your God, remember all that God has done to bring you into relationship with him. And he did so much for them back then. He's done so much more clearly for us today as new covenant people. And that's the ground, not only his holiness, but his redemptive action that makes us his own people. And we read verse 26 from chapter 20, where he says, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I've separated you from the peoples. Why? that you should be mine. You belong, God says. You belong to me. I've purchased you. I've won you over with my redemptive love. That is the ground of the call to holiness. And there's a third dimension to this. Not only the Lord is holy, not only has he done these redemptive acts that enable us to be in a covenant relationship with him, but also he's given us a vocation as a part of that covenantal relationship. And here's what I mean. In Exodus 19, 5 and 6, this is what the Lord says. Now, therefore, if indeed you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. When you read, I am the Lord, also hear in that, that you have a vocation in the covenantal relationship with him to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is to say that Israel was called to mediate the blessing of God to the world. They were not called or elected for their own sake. They were chosen for the sake of the world, that God's promise to Abraham to create a worldwide family of blessing would one day become a reality. And the means by which that was to happen was through his people Israel. Of course, it happened in an upside-down, obscure, and strange way that they didn't expect by them becoming, in a sense, the sin-bearer and going into exile, and then Jesus, the Messiah, coming to bear the curse. But this was the point. They were, to, they were to bear to the world the character and nature of God in their vocation as a kingdom of priests. Priests were mediators and a holy nation. So the ground of a life of holiness is God himself, the covenantal Lord. And you can't fulfill this vocation, by the way, without being holy. It's not possible. In fact, Jesus says, what does he say to the New Covenant community in the Sermon on the Mount? You are the light of the world. Don't hide the light. 
but you are the light of the world as you live into this new kind of holy character of the people of God that Jesus defines afresh in the Sermon on the Mount. So the ground of holiness, I am the Lord, or I am the Lord your God. This covenantal relationship, the holiness of God, and this vocation that we've been given in the covenant. And then finally, the motivations. And there are four here. I'm going to go through four motivations. The first is the most basic and most central. And it's implied in I am the Lord. It's implied in the reality of the covenant. It's implied in all that God has done to get them to this point. And it's simply that we would respond to God's great redemptive love in our lives with love for him, with a warm, joy-filled, humble love for the one who first loved us. What moves us to grow in the life of holiness to which God is calling his people of nonconformity and conformity is a deep and abiding love. Well, how's that love been put in our hearts? By the grace of God, I should say. The love, of God has been, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. This is Romans 5, verse 5. God's love has warmed our hearts such that we now long. We don't walk down the path of holiness reluctantly or sheepishly, but brazenly, boldly. We walk down this path because of our deep love. This doesn't work. This motivation of love doesn't work unless we deeply know the love that God has for us. And here's what this does too. The ordering here is so important. So sometimes people read the Old Testament and think, well, they had to keep the law in order to actually be accepted by God. And there are ways of reading some of what Paul says in the New Testament, even on verses that take place here in Leviticus 18, that make people, lend people to go in that direction. I think those are misreadings of both of the Old Testament and of the New Testament, actually. Because what this clearly implies here, I am the Lord as the, the, the ground, is that there's not a single way in which the, the holy, that we pursue holiness to earn the love of God or the favor of God. We just don't. And the people of God in the Old Covenant never did either. It was given to them freely, given to them graciously. Our motivation is love for his great rescue for us. It's always been that way as the people of God. So if you walk out of here this evening and you think, well, look, I'm going to go be holy so that God will love me and like me and accept me, it's just, that's a wrong and disordered way of thinking. It's not a biblical way of thinking. The first motivation is just out of response. It's because we understand the depth of his love for us. Do you understand that love that he has for you? The second motivation is actually what we find in some pretty stout words at the end of Leviticus 18. So look with me at verse 24. Do not, make for yourselves un- do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, or impure, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. How's that for a, an image in your mind? Uh, the land vomited out its inhabitants. What this is doing, this, these last seven verses in Leviticus 18 are reaffirming the call to holiness upon the people of God, but they're giving the negative motivation, which is to avoid divine judgment or the divine wrath, which is rightly set against anything that mars or destroys or undermines God's intentions for life in his creation. And we can never be more holy than the Bible, I should say, in terms of our motivations. And so while this isn't the primary motivation that we would want to give, the New Testament does pick on the, up on this as well and says, look, we want to avoid the judgment of God. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So let's walk rightly. Let's walk in a holy manner so that we can confront that day with assurance. So the second motivation is to avoid 
this vomiting out. Here the, the land is personified as an agent of divine justice, vomiting out its inhabitants. And what God is saying to Israel is, look, all these nations that you're driving out to get into Canaan, well, they're being driven out because they followed these abominable practices that don't, don't uh, line up with my, my purposes for the world. And so they're, they're actually being pushed out of the land. And look, Israel, if you walk down those same paths, then you're going to be pushed out of the land too. And what happens later in their story? That very thing, they go into exile. They're banished from the land. Because instead of walking down the path of holiness, what do they do? They begin to look like the Canaanites. They take on the features of the culture around them. And they experience this kind of judgment. So the second motivation is to avoid divine judgment. The third motivation, there are four here that I want to mention, is a desire to live. And we, gotta, we go back to the beginning for this, for verse, or to verse 5. You therefore shall keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. This doesn't mean that they understood, again, that they could earn life by keeping the commandments. They were given life as a gift from God. To the contrary, um, it is all of grace. And J. Sklar points out, this is the Old Testament scholar, Leviticus scholar, that Scripture regularly connects obeying the Lord's commands with living in the sphere of his favor. So he comments, this is because his commands are like the borders of his kingdom, and those who stay within those borders proclaim their allegiance to him as king and remain within the sphere of divine blessing. So to stay within these boundaries of God's statutes and rules is to stay within the sphere of God's divine kind of canopy that hangs over and protects and brings blessing and enjoy, we can enjoy life in, uh, uh, with his blessing. To step outside of those boundaries is not to live, though it often promises life, this is the nature of sin, but it's actually to move away from life. And so Adam and Eve in the garden, they step outside the boundaries, they eat the forbidden fruit, and they're banished from the garden. They're moved away from the God of life. So the idea here is that the one who, um, who does them will live by them. It will live under the divine protection and blessing that is given to those who walk in the Lord's ways. And so this motivation is a desire to live. Do you desire blessing? Do you desire peace? Do you desire joy? Do you desire uh, a sense of purpose and clarity of vocation in your life? Well, pursue holiness. Pursue the way of life that God has designed and revealed. And this is the way by which you will live. Pursue all of these other things that promise life but can't give, that are outside of his boundaries. And it will lead to the opposite of those things, to despair, discouragement, insecurity, vanity, pride. So the third motivation is a desire to live. So it's for our good. And the fourth is for the good of our neighbor. Remember, I mentioned that we have a vocation, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was to be like God and to show forth God's praise into the world of pagan neighbors. And they would do this as they walked in every area of life according to God's statutes and just decrees. And this is how that's described in Deuteronomy 4. Moses says to the people of God, as they're on the brink of entering into the promised land, entering into Canaan, he says, see, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. 
Moses continues, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? As you live in this way, people will see. First Peter 2, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they malign you, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Live this kind of distinct, qualitatively distinct and different life in and around the peoples that you're called to lay your life down for as Jesus laid down his life for you. And more and more people will come to see the goodness, the holiness, the wonder, the power, the love, the mercy, the forgiveness of God. And they will come into life. This is your vocation, people of God, is to be a mediator, to be a kingdom of priests who mediate the life of God through the way that you live in and around the culture to which God has sent you. J.C. Ryle, I mentioned at the beginning, uh, and these quotes I've taken from his work on holiness, which is excellent. He says this, he says, we must be holy because this is the most likely way to do good to others. We cannot live to ourselves only in this world. Our lives will always be doing either good or harm to those who see them. They are a silent sermon which all can read. I believe that far more is done for Christ's kingdom by the holy living of believers than we are at all aware of. There is a reality about such living which makes men feel and obliges them to think. It carries a weight and influence with it which nothing else can give. It makes religion beautiful and draws men to consider it like a lighthouse seen afar off. To adorn the gospel of God in Jesus Christ with spirit-empowered lives that are growing in holiness is to live more fully into the vocation that God has given us to mediate his blessings to the world. And one, the final motivation here is the motivation for the good of our neighbor, that we would grow in holiness as the people of God. The shape, the ground, and the motivations. There they are for the old covenant people of God, but they remain the same, just intensified and then enabled by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in a whole new way among his new covenant people. We too are called to be holy. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter quotes Leviticus 19, 2. Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your gift of grace and for how it informs and shapes all that we are. And I pray tonight that for each of us that you would move in our hearts in a new way this Advent season, that you would purge from us those parts of us that are in rebellion to you, that are actually obeying the statutes and rules of the culture around us, perhaps around money or sex or power, and not the rules and statutes of your word, your life-giving word. We pray that you would show us these parts of our hearts, that we could confess them to you and receive your forgiveness and walk afresh and anew into the pathway of holiness that you have opened up for us through your Son and through the Spirit that you've poured out upon us as your people. We long, Lord, to be ready for your return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.